This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome to Open the Voice Gate for October 11th, 2019. I am your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. I am joined with Case Lowe. We are proud members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You could follow our podcast or the rest of the network's podcasts on the podcast platform of your choice. If you are interested in giving a donation to Open the Voice Gate, we would greatly appreciate it. There is a button on the red circle page in which you do show do so there's no obligation you could choose to give one one donation or set up a concurring one and we'd appreciate it the uh, official podcast account on twitter is at open that's usually me behind it just tweeting out news and episodes my personal one is fuji Heya. that is Fujiheya with two eyes like Don Fuji in cases is underscore in your case. Now that I've gotten that all out of the way, Case, how are you doing, bud? Mike, I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back recording with you, and I'm ready to talk about an eventful month and a half in Dragon Gate. Yeah, it's been kind of wild since the last time we recorded, and with, with like the last few months, like we are now, I feel like officially in the hot period of Dragon Gate schedule, and it's certainly been eventful to say the very least. Yeah, it's it's a good time. I mean, you've got you know the big show. You had Dangerous Gate at the end of August, and now you've got Gate of Destiny coming up in just a few weeks at the at the start of November, and then Final Gate's coming up. It's kind of mid December this year instead of late December, which is something we'll tackle when we get to it. But this is this is the stuff that matters. These are the big shows. We've got a new Dreamgate champion or a newer Dreamgate champion, and this reign matters a lot to the company. And there's there's stuff going on on the undercard. We've got some mid-card stuff that's going on. I've got some issues in the main event scene that we'll discuss today, but there's a lot happening right now. And so Mike and I felt like we need to get on and record a little bit. Yeah, it's been a little bit. September had the Gate of the Origin show from Sendai. I think it's now back up on the network. It's something and then the core can it's, it's not worth if, if you missed gate of origin it's not it's not worth going back to and that's not like a bit of like oh it's a bad show no it's it's not worth your time i thought it was a bad dragon gate show which i don't typically say yeah it just was i thought that sendai was going to be treated a little better than they ended up treating it so it's just really not worth your time and then the september corkin had a lot of eventful things that led up into this cork and that we will be talking about i mean that was the one that had the dream key battle royal for the first time in i want to say seven years since that uh since the, the shima battle royals at the very least and then 
you know, that was the announcement of Ada's declaring war on Ultimo Dragon. So I think that's about the best kind of uh, kind of backlog history for people. Is there anything that I'm missing out on before we get into the show from the 8th? No, that was the month of September, and I'm much more excited to talk about the month of October. All right, let's get into it. The big show that we're going to be focusing most of this episode on was the Gate of Victory 2019 show from Tokyo's Corken Hall on October 8th. If you have not watched the show, it will be up on Driving Gate Network until about the 15th uh, Japanese time, so probably about 11 a.m. the 14th our time. The attendance for the show was 1603, which is down just a handful from the September show of 1611. So it still was claimed a super no vacancy, not claimed a full house, but it looked it looked full and it sounded full. And before we start breaking down this card case, let's just have some overall thoughts about it. So what did you think overall about this Corkin? I really, really like this show. I think it's helped by the fact that the main event was as good as it was, and I, and I hope we start with the main event because I think we both have the most to say about that. Um, it's a good look at the promotion as a whole because this show accomplished a lot of really good things. It set up some angles for the future, and then it had some stuff that I personally had an issue with. But as a whole, an enjoyable show, an easy watch, especially when you look at some of these match times. You know, opener goes five minutes, second match goes six, five minutes, five minutes. There's just a lot of quick matches on this show, and then you get to the latter half of the card and you got 15 and 20 minute matches. It makes everything a little bit more digestible. So as a whole, I really enjoyed the show, even if there's a few things that I wasn't too crazy about. Yeah, I'm kind of similar on that. I think I will be a little bit of the negative person on the show because I did not like how fast the undercard was. This was a show with nine matches, which is something that even... For Dragon Gate, that's kind of ridiculous for Cork, and usually it's six plus a match zero. So they definitely felt the time crunch and wanted to make sure to give time to the top two matches on the show. But really, everything I would say, starting with the three-way on, is worth your effort getting into it. But since you brought it up already, let's start off with the big main event. It was what I would expect would be this year's only Cork and open the Dreamgate match. They haven't had one so far this year in Cork, and last year they had two, but this time it was Binkei versus the Dream Key Battle Royal winner that I talked about briefly, Misaki Mochizuki, for the uh, second defense of Binkei's title. He was successful in this in 20 minutes with the Binkei crash headbutt, and just, I know we've both kind of gone on Twitter about this at... This is now my Dragon Gate match of the year, Case. Uh, how, where does this stack up amongst the year's top matches for you? It is still, as of this moment, my number two match in Dragon Gate this year. Something about Pac versus KZ felt very special, whereas with Pac and KZ, I, I flirted with five stars, ended up going four and three quarters. This match, I flirted with four and three quarters, was kind of sitting on four and a half for a little bit, then eventually bumped it up to that 4.75, because... As I was writing the review for the match, I was just remembering these little things and getting reinvested in a match that I had just watched, and I felt like at that point that rating was appropriate. Pac versus KZ was really almost on that next level, but two great matches. Pac versus KZ for sure is finishing my top 10. With the way things are going now, I could very easily see this match kind of slotting into my ninth or my 10th slot when the Voices of Wrestling Match of the Year poll comes out, because this match was 
incredible. And, you know, last year, these two had a match in March that finished number five in my top ten. So this is now their second singles match, and it was another blow-away match of the year contender. So more power to these guys for doing what they did. I think that we have our number one and two matches flip-flopped, and this was the one that was even more so flirting with five stars than the final show at Hakata Star Lanes, just because... I think Masaki Mochizuki might be the smartest wrestler in the world, just because because I know we've talked about his previous title reign where each match was kind of different. This match was a completely different match than that Champion Gate match that they had last year. Just There was so much about it, and just Masaki Mochizuki deciding, okay, I can't tire him out anymore because he's on a roll. Now I just have to destroy this guy's arm, and it, it just was... I just loved everything about it. It's one of the few matches that I've gone back and rewatched right after just because of how crazy it was. It just, nothing more can really be said to elevate how smart of a wrestler Mochizuki was. But I also kind of felt like this was the match where Ben K ascended to being the ace of this current generation. Like, well, that, that's exactly it. Mm-hmm. So, so think about this. So think about your recent Open the Dream Gate reigns um, I think in particular, the one that I was afraid of Ben K's reign turning into was the Yamato reign that lasted from the summer of 2016 to the fall of 2017, which was, it felt like this culmination of Yamato turning into a full-time top-of-the-line kind of guy, and, and the reign ultimately failed, I think, from multiple aspects, but one of the main things of that was there was no match that defined that title reign, whereas... With Pac in his reign, you know, he had gotten off to a little bit of a rocky start. I mean, I liked his debut match. Then he had the rough match with Flamita in November. The Yoshino match where he won the belt I thought was was very good, but not, you know, awe-inspiring. And then he has this match with KZ that completely changes the way we look at that reign. And it just gave him this momentum and this confidence and this poise that... The Yamato reign lacked, the prior Masato Yoshino reign lacked, uh, even Mochizuki's reign up until the KZ match in February of 2017, or was that 2018? I don't remember. Uh, 2018, yeah, that was last year. It They didn't have these definitive matches, and you look at the great Dreamgate reigns in history, whether it be Shima's uh, incredibly long run, the Mochizuki run of 2011, Shingo's numerous title reigns, they all seem to have one or two definitive this is my title, this is my company kind of matches, and this was what Ben K needed, because the Yamato match at the end of August was not that. I thought it was a bit of a disappointment. This was literally perfect in the sense that it's like, okay, this is this is what we can expect from a Ben K title reign. This is exactly what I'm going to be looking for in all of my matches going forward, and it just so happened that he was in the ring with a guy who, as I tweeted out, is at worst one of the ten greatest wrestlers of all time. Yeah, and for me, seeing Benke really evolve since the RED turn at Dead or Alive on May 6th has been seeing him going from a single-dimensional wrestler where he was definitely the person of potential, but he was someone that was still a work in progress. But over the last, now, five months, we have a completed Benke. We have someone that, over the King of Gate tournament, he ran the table, and he showed, okay, it's not just the Ben K bomb. I also have my spear as a finish. And now he has a third finish with the Ben K crash headbutt, and he also has his submission as well. 
we're starting to see a more complete ace. And that's something that I think is so important when you look at these other ace-defining tile reigns because in a lot of ways, and this is nothing against Yamato as a wrestler, he was kind of positioned as that almost as like the network's ace. It very much was kind of along the lines of how Sting was positioned as the future ace of Jim Crockett promotions into WCW in the late 80s and early 90s where he was the ace because we were told he was the ace. And his matches didn't really pick up from there. And then also this kind of reminds me of each time they really tried to elevate T-Hawk. And T-Hawk was someone that never had the natural charisma inside Dragon Gate to pull off being this ace. And Binke, during this match, he just oozed not only just cockiness, but he was just self-assured that this guy was going to try to tear off his arm, but that he was not going to lose. And you you can have someone like Masaki Mochizuki lead someone to a great match. We saw that last year in their first title match where Benkei was not this finished prospect. He was still very raw and toolsy. But now we see in this match that Masaki Mochizuki, of course, kind of was the, I, I would suspect just because of the kind of matches that Mochizuki has had in the past, this was very much like an idea from Mochizuki. But Benkei, more than just like held up his part of the deal, he kind of transcended his part of the deal throughout this match. And it just was a very special match. And Again, this is a match that when you compare it to Yamato's huge reign, where we had a bunch of 25 to 35 minute matches, this match finished right before they did the 20 minute call, and it was expertly timed. Like they didn't need to go on much longer. They they told their story perfectly within 20 minutes, and it just is something really special and has a lot of really good moments in this match as well, which I find absolutely remarkable. And again, I, I'm with you on this. Masaki Mochizuki is the person that people don't talk about enough. But he is one of the top 10 in-ring wrestlers of all time. Well, and before we wax poetically about Mochizuki for, I don't know, a half hour, 45 <laughs> minutes, however you feel is appropriate, it, you are exactly right in that we are watching Ben K evolve, which is something that we never really got with T-Hawk, and it always felt like T-Hawk was on the cusp of it. It turns out he just needed to leave, go to China, and then come to Wrestle 1 to see the evolution that we never really got in this company. If Benkei and Mochizuki had worked a match similar to what they did in March of last year, this match would not mean as much. But the fact is, Benkei is not the wrestler he was in March of last year. And so they worked it as such. And it was just, it was great to see in sort of a first act, second act type of deal to see this wrestler's evolution. And that's just something that I think Drangate does better than almost anybody. I think New Japan's great at it. I think All Elite will eventually become very good at it. But yeah, it was it was satisfying to see, and it's just one of those things that I know Rich and Joe on the flagship podcast always talk about is Drangate rewards their long-term viewers better than any other company out there. And to me, I felt rewarded watching this after watching their match last year, after seeing Ben K just climb and climb and climb. And granted, you know, it's you know, he maybe started a few rungs above the rest of the roster just with the way he's built and with the way he was pushed coming out of the gates. But the fact is he's he's had to deliver because he's had these monumental expectations put on him. And this was a culmination of just Ben K just being so good and it's so awesome. And and now it's time for Masaki Mochizuki, which I know you've got a lot to say. I've got a lot to say. So Mike Masaki Mochizuki. So one of my favorite things about Misaki Mochizuki is when we talk about his tile reign that he most recently had, each match was very different. The match at Dangerous Gate 2017, where he won the title from him, 
was much more different than the Final Gate match, different than the KZ Corkin match, and just different throughout the entire reign leading up to uh, Masato Yoshino winning the title. And this was a different style of Masaki Mochizuki match. He pretty much, you could see it play out where you can hear his internal monologue say, okay, this guy is an absolute steam tank engine coming at me. I don't know if I could kick him down, but if I disable his arm, I'm going to be able to win because I know that if I get him down on the ground and constantly work his arm, work his arm, work his arm, that is my possible avenue for success. Am I wrong in thinking that that was very well kind of displayed throughout the match from him? No, I thought it was I thought it was exactly what they were trying to do. And he takes it to a level of one of the clips that I immediately rewound back and watched was the typical spot where Mochizuki slings his opponent into the corner and then he starts doing a running high kick to the head instead of doing the usual like clothesline or elbow smash he does a running basically for lack of better words yakuza kick and this time he directed it down towards his arm and his shoulder and the first time I watched this case I was like oh this did he miss a little bit of that like did he miss a little bit of that then I rewound 30 seconds watching it and said no he explicitly went for the arm and shoulder and it just was one of those like little touches that when you see Masaki Mochizuki have these kind of matches you know you're in for a treat because you look at Masaki Mochizuki he turns 50 in January and you think like okay he's going to be doing the the wily old vet way but he does it in different ways he does like little touches such as oh I'm going to do a kick out at one but it's not just going to be kick out at one. It's going to be kick out at one because I punched the guy right in the jaw and hit him Which in the button. Which was the best spot of the match to me. I, Incredible. I lost my mind when I saw that. Yeah, I, I watched this match at about 11.30 my time. And I think I yelled loud enough in my house that my neighbors heard me <laughs> during that punch. Because it just was remarkable, wasn't it? Uh, it was. And it's just one of those little things. And I mentioned this in my review that it's... And I, I don't mean this in a braggadocious way or a selfish way. It... It truly bums me out that the people that would enjoy this match uh, the most, other than us, obviously, are people that are never going to watch this match because it's in a company that they have a wrongful mindset of what the house style is. You know, they've stereotyped this company into something that it's not because there are spots in this match that would belong on a blood sports show or that would get over huge in the Big Japan Strong Division, whatever niche market you're looking to fill, this match had the physicality of that sort of thing, but they're never going to watch it because of the logo on the on the canvas, and that's incredibly frustrating to me, because Mochizuki just has just this command and is able to do these small things at these matches. Again, you mentioned it, the punch to the jaw on after right after the Ben K bomb it will stick with me for years it's just one of the most unique things i've ever seen that i wish wrestlers would take but you know I, the indie wrestlers of today are are busy watching attitude era raws and not dragon gate which i don't understand but you know <laughs> at this point if you're on the indies there's probably a reason for that anyways um but it's it's just i just love this guy you know you mentioned his age just a minute ago he's 49 now he'll turn 50 in january it does he have a legitimate most outstanding case maybe not number one but if you're ranking your top three most outstanding wrestlers of the year is he in there he's in mine but that's also stating that about 65 percent of my wrestling watching this year has been dragon gate all elite or stardom joshi 
So I, I, I'm someone that like I'll dip in, I'll dip into New Japan and I'll see the Will Ospreay case as we get closer to the end of the year. But when I look at Dragon Gate and when we get to the end of the year and start talking about who our top wrestlers in the year are, Mochizuki, as always, I feel like there's not been many years where he has not had a most outstanding in the company claim. And it would either be him or Susumu Yokosuka this year. And Ooh, interesting. I will give you my number two later on the show because that's not Yokosuka. Okay, okay. I'm interested in that. Yeah, we will cross that bridge when we come to it. But just, you know, so for me, my viewing habits this year are Dragon Gate first, New Japan second, and then just kind of a hodgepodge of North American stuff. I watch a lot of AAW. I've watched everything All Elite's done. Um, but for me, I just ran some numbers right before the show started. So I have Mochizuki with 12 four-plus star matches this year. So four to 4.75 Mochizuki's filled all of those slots. I've got 12 matches of his in that bubble. Tomohiro Ishii, just for reference, has 13 for me, and that's including the G1 stuff. 15 for Kota Ibushi, 16 for Shingo Takagi. The people who Mochizuki is beating, three wrestlers by the names of Kazuchika Okada, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and Tetsuya Naito, who all, as of right now, have less four-star matches than me, and that is including all of the G1 stuff. Uh, the one outlier there is Will Ospreay, who has 22 for me right now <laughs> and has a bunch of good matches lined up for the rest of the year, I'm sure. So Osprey is going to be most outstanding this year. It's his to win. It's been his year. But I don't know. Mochizuki feels like a viable two or three, kind of depending on what Ishii does for the rest of the year. I'm sure I, I kind of like Ibushi in there as well because I think he's really turned a corner into an elite-tier worker this year. But I don't think Mochizuki has been in that discussion, which I think is a little bit unfair because this year it's been, you know, this Ben K match. It's been the Shun Skywalker match from May that I was a huge fan of. He's had a number of matches this year that are not just like good Dragon Gate matches, but really, really good matches. And to me, he's the most outstanding candidate. And he's also, in a lot of ways, one of the most interesting candidates just because of the whole Mochizuki Dojo storyline. He's been ha he's been in matches with Shun Skywalker. He's been in matches with Hio Watanabe, Kota Minenora, Kisuke Akuda, and uh, Yuki Oshioka that have all been exceptional. And I would be willing to guess that it's his leadership that has taken these guys as well and has put forth like the best possible versions of them in these matches. And just to touch back on the September Corican, the final stretch between Shun Skywalker and uh, Keizi and uh, Masaki Mochizuki was one of my favorite things on the card that that week. It just it was, creates, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was gonna say it. It took a match type that is a little bit troublesome in Dragon Gate, and they made it into their own thing, and it was very remarkable in my mind. The Mochizuki Jojo stuff, at the very least, creates at least a little bit of an interesting influence case if we were gonna look at this from an Observer Hall of Fame perspective. Because to me, and I don't have a ballot, but if I did and Mochizuki ended up on the ballot, I am a no-brainer. I'd vote for him, but I also recognize that I think if Mochizuki was put on the ballot, he'd get less than 10% of the vote because I just don't... I don't think people that know Masaki Mochizuki, I think they all recognize he's a great worker. It's more of the issue of the people that are unaware of him, that haven't seen his work, that you know they would see a Japanese name they don't recognize that's not in New Japan, and they would go, well, he's not an Observer Hall of Famer. But to me... It's an entirely in-ring case. He has no substantial drawing records. There's no huge influence category there except for the Mochizuki Dojo stuff, which 
I choose to believe he's helping them behind the scenes, but it's mostly a kayfabe thing. Um, but it's an entirely in-ring case. But I, I, I do see your point there, and I think that's interesting to look at at least a 1% influence case of, hey, those Mochizuki, Mochizuki Dojo kids are really good, and they just happen to be wrestling and touring with this guy who is really great. I am not entirely pos- positive about how they do like backstage stuff. There's some stuff I'm more positive about, but like day-to-day things, I don't know if it's basically a giant group chat between the five of them or the four of them now that they would just like talk back and forth and like go to workouts and things like this but just being able to tag and and watch his matches i feel like is such a good influence on these guys so i like completely so so it's really interesting and we've seen now how across the last really the entirety of bing k's career misaki mochizuki has been a very certain person that has always been around Binke's career when Binke was still Fuda Nakamura he was his first tag team partner I think in the last Summer Adventure Tag League yeah so like and the ill-fated Summer Adventure Tag League a bunch of people got hurt there right and that tournament ended up not being as good as I think we all hoped it would be absolutely but it's just some of those things that you you see how he is with these younger wrestlers and if anything like I am an influence guy and I can't say too much about the Observer Hall of Fame because I've made a public statement that I made one tweet, and now if I say anything else, then Aaron Bentley has permission to punch me in the neck. So I can. So, so the <laughs> I only missed I, that tweet. <laughs> so, so my other other. So my only other comment there is no comment. Well, I will say one thing uh, before we move on to something that I'm not crazy about right now. You know, I look at these star ratings I've got, and I, as I'm sure everybody is aware, I keep a very detailed spreadsheet of everything I like throughout the years. I've been doing this for five years now, which is embarrassing to go on my Google Drive and realize just how much data I have about shit that only me, Mike, and Alan Cunahan care about. But that is besides the point. But last year in Drangi, the entire calendar year, I only had 32 matches at four stars or higher. And this year through basically the end of September, and we'll count the start of October, I'm already at 45 matches, which it just makes me happy just because the company's gotten so much better and is in such a better spot than it was this past year. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I don't have the digital aspect, but Case knows that I have physical notebooks. I write down things from every match. And then like I, a psycho. It's how I retain the information, dude. I've been this way since I was in school. I do transcribe everything now over to my recommendations list. And just looking at my recommendations list right now, just... It, right now, if I was going to declare a MVP of the year, Mo- Mochizuki is up there for it. And that's even including the fact that he has matches on here that are four ma- four stars and four and a quarter. So he he's something remarkable, and I feel really lucky that we are living in the day and age of him. And at the same time, like what you said about 2018 versus 2019, at least entering-wise... Not necessarily storyline-wise, and there's some points we'll get to that make me a little bit worried. This might end up being my favorite Dragon Gate year since 2015, I want to say. I think that's a that's a safe bet. I, I wouldn't necessarily say 2011 or 2013, but 2015 is kind of like my most recent high watermark for the company. And it's clear, just because of all the Mochizuki Dojo stuff that... When there was other things going on that were so strong here, even with what I think is one of the weaker heel units in Dragon Gate history, 
with the exception of when Pac was around, this has just been a remarkable year. So now on to something we don't enjoy as much. So, so do you want to work from the semi-main event down? Yeah, yeah, let's just go down the card from here because I think it gets uh, not less interesting, but we've still got a lot to say. But, uh, you know, as we go down the card, we'll have less to say. But right. I want to talk about Ultima. I'm in a good mood. Ultima's going to put me in a bad mood. Let's <laughs> do it. All right, the semi-main event of this show was set up from the September Corican where Ada declared war on Ultimo Dragon and the Torimon generation because he being a dickhead said that he doesn't know what Torimon is and he doesn't know about any of these guys it was in this was like the the first time they haven't called this a 20th anniversary match but it was the veteran slash uh technico side of Ultimo Dragon Ryo Saito Kness and Super Shisa going against the R.E.D. Rudos of Ada Big R. Shimizu Yazushi Kanda and Diamante the finish came when Kanda turned on R.E.D and did a, one of the most brutal box attacks that I've seen in a long time to Ada, really busting him open, which allowed Ultimo to do the La Maestral Cradle in 15 minutes and 56 seconds. I went three and a half on it just because I like the heel, the, the face turn a whole lot. And did you, do you want me to mention what happened post-match right now, or should we just talk about this match first? No, let's talk post-match first. All right. Go ahead. So after the match, this was a very big corkin for R.E.D. as we will get into the other turn that happened. But Ada revealed one of his big secrets, which was he has two masked demons, which is what they're being referred to. They're basically wearing red jumpsuits and traditional Japanese demon masks. I just call them the red demons for now. There's two of them. I think it's pretty fair to say that those two that we saw at Corkin are most likely placeholders for whomever it might be later. But it looks like we're getting an update to the... Uh, Dr. Muscle and Metal Warrior gimmick, at least for a little bit. So, now that they did all that, uh, Yuzushi Kanda has turned face. He's kind of reunited with this veteran Technico army that's going on here on this side of Ultimo. Um, I want three and a half stars again, as I said. I thought this was all right. This does have my fear of seeing Ultimo Dragon be absolutely useless in a crowd brawl. I mean... It was some of the more uh, disappointing things seeing a guy just basically get slung into chairs and deciding to just sit down. But, <laughs> and that happened several times in this match. But this had a pretty good f- flow to it. This was very much an Ultimo Show match, with, but you're going to have that with Kness and Shisa there. Ryo Saito basically did the uh, took the beat down from the heels, and it just was kind of decent, and it was just an Ultimo Show match i thought the heels were fine this is probably diamante's best performance in dragon gate so far so case you take the microphone now how do you feel about ultimo mode coming through here i'm just i'm gravely concerned over the matter because since he has come in full-time and really i mean yeah i mean everything from kobe world on i think is what we need to look at because before then, it was just kind of awkward teasing, and then his awkward debut. They hit the exact right notes at Kobe World, and then they did it again at the August Cork, and it looked like this was going to be a lot of fun. But now that he's a member of the full-time roster, there's a lot of stuff popping up that I don't like. And there's a few things here to look at. First of all, the structure of these cards has drastically changed. As Mike talked about earlier, they booked two battle royals within a week of one another after not booking a televised battle royal for a, a seven years at least. And also, uh, uh, battle royals 
were more of a staple of the Torimon brand. Mike talked about at the very start of the show how there were nine matches on the show and it made the undercard feel cramped. What is a staple of Torimon? Fast, cramped undercard matches. There's one match that we'll get to in a minute that I loved, but it was a Torimon-style match to a T. And then there's the fact that, for whatever reason, when Ultimo Dragon is on these cards, it it takes so much focus away from the rest of the roster, and it's the one major reservation I still have about Denkei's reign, is how can he outshine Ultimo when Ultimo casts such a large light against the rest of the roster, and we've never really seen a star of this caliber in this company. The great thing about Drangate is that someone can go from headlining a major show one night to an opening six-man the next night, and it really doesn't feel all that out of place. Ben K is in the opening match of the uh, the Kaito or not, I believe it's the Kobe Sambo Hall show on October 20th. Yeah, Ben K, the Dreamgate champion, is in the opening match of the October 20th show, which doesn't feel that weird. You know who's in the main event of both the Kaito show on the 12th that is taped and the Kobe Sambo Hall show on the 20th that is taped? It is Ultimo Dragon. And it would feel very awkward if Ultimo was not at least in the semi-main event of these shows. The closest I think we've come to this was Shingo towards the end of his Dragongate run post-Dreamgate Championship when he was so dominant and such a bruising force on the roster that, yeah, it was like Shingo can't really work openers. He kind of has to be in a pushed position, but if Shingo's going to be pushed but we're not going to give him a title, I guess that means he has to team with Takashi Yoshida and Yoshida just has to take all the falls, and it got really messy, which I think is part of the reason Shingo left because he just became too big for this small Dragon Gate pond, even Shima at his peak, and Shima was a political monster and someone who, at his very worst, put himself over time after time when he didn't need to, Shima never really had this vibe that Shingo started to get and that Ultimo definitely has. And I just fear that as we go along, it is going to become more of the Ultimo vision of this product and less of what Drangate has done successfully for the past 15 years. And maybe I'm crazy, but there's just a lot of stuff going on right now with Ultimo Dragon that I don't like, including the fact that in this match, Kness, Saito, and Shisa all come out together, and then Ultimo still, as now a full-time roster member, has his own special entrance. And I don't know if I'm making a big deal out of that or not, but it felt like a big deal when I was watching it which is great in any other company, but goes against the logic of what Drangate has been doing for 15 years. Yeah, and I, I think that it's something with him that he is such a figure and he is someone that's so dominant that you have to kind of put him in the guise of what is his um, overall goal here because he is someone that I know I've written it extensively there is my piece up on voices of wrestling about that that he is someone that his post toriumon run after the split was kind of an unmitigated disaster i think that's fair to say just because he his school in mexico completely tanked he the only reason he held it open for a couple more years was because he sold the contract of kazuchiko okada to new japan and he comes back here and does seem that these guys completely forgot what happened 15 years ago 
when he's around. And you watch the shows, and as you pretty aptly put, he is someone that it, that you look at these shows, and it was even more of a stark thing in September case because he wasn't on every show in September. So you would have the Corkin, which was very much an Ultimo show, and I think we'll be burying that thing 10 feet under by how many times we call things the Ultimo show because it's the best way to describe it. And then you would have the other shows throughout the month where he was not on it, and the shows felt more like what the traditional Dragon Gate show was over the last 15 years. And when we talk about his role in the company, there are certain things that he, I think he's good for the company. I think he's a good bridge figure. He's someone that now that they are without strong hearts, now that Pac looks like to have ra- who has wrapped up his time there, having him as a draw certainly doesn't hurt. But when I look at like these shows, pardon me, and when I look at how things are booked and how they're even going to have a 21st anniversary Toriyaman show for whatever reason it just seems like guys do you all are, are y'all basically happy that dad went out for smokes and disappeared for 15 years and now dad's back because that's what i how i feel like when i watch this sometimes it's just this absolute like deference to him when they built this company to the legitimate number two company in japan some of it was due to the attrition of what happened along lines of all japan and noah but a lot of it was on their own merits and targeting their own audience and he comes back in and they seem to have immediately forgot what the last 15 years have been and that's the thing that really frustrates me because it's not it the ultimo show matches weren't the things that got me into the promotion they weren't the things that when i go back i've really enjoyed the stuff i've really enjoyed is when it was true to itself and the wrestler's vision and there's a part of me that's afraid that all this deference to Ultimo Dragon is going to come back and bite them. It's one of those things. We we wanted the reunion tour. We didn't want a new album per se. Right. And we are now getting new Ultimo work, which just, it's not something I ever had any interest in. Whereas again, a one-off or even going up through Gate of Origin, because I, even though the match wasn't spectacular, the Gate of Origin main event with uh, Sasuke and Jinsei Shinsaki was very cool. I mean, it was it was stunning to watch all of those talents in the same ring. But now that we're in uh, post Ultimo phase, now that Ultimo is working on new material per se, I I'm not interested in it, and I don't I don't like it. I mean, it's fair to say that Diamante is a direct. My understanding is at least that he is uh, uh, flying directed by Ultimo because he's worked the Dragon Mania shows, and other than that, there's really no connection. To him and the rest of the roster in Dragon Gate over the past, you know, a decade at this point now, they really haven't missed with too many foreigners, but Diamante has been a miss. And then as Mike alluded to, we've got the Tori Yuman 21st anniversary show coming up, which we will talk about more in time because we need, I, I need way more information on it, but everything I know now, I'm kind of ready to bury it 10 feet below because, I mean, as far as we know, there's going to be no Sua, there's going to be no Taro, there's going to be no Milano collection, there's going to be no Magnum. It's obvious they're not going to use Stronghearts unless something drastically changes, and even then, the guy that they need is Shima, and the guy that they seem to be on the worst terms with is Shima. So, <laughs> I, I don't, are we just going to watch uh, Ryo Saito and Super Shisa uh, wrestle with a different logo on the mat? Like, I don't understand the purpose of that at all, but again, we've got some time. I'm sure more information will trickle out, but at least at the start... It's a cool novelty, but given everything that it's wrapped up in, 
I'm not excited about it. So I'm just I'm concerned about the future and how much influence Ultimo has, and we will try to get more information on what his exact role is behind the scenes. But he's someone that doesn't need any power or influence. He needs to show up and do his cradle and get out and maybe get out for good after some time. I mean, I just don't see how this works in a long-term scenario. Yeah, and especially in conflict with what current president Toru Kido has said about them wanting to eventually make the uh, Kobe Pro Wrestling Festival into the Wrestle Kingdom of the West for Kansai wanting to run the Kyocera Dome eventually by the end of his time at Dragon Gate. And I look at the numbers now, and you look at attendance, attendance is basically stagnated with him around. And when we talk about that Tormont show, and again, we're, we're not going to talk too much more about a show that's happening in January. You're not going to have Sua. Sua is persona non grata slash his... Uh, he has some really bad uh, physical abilities now. He's someone that legitimately, I think he had to retire from being a referee. His physical condition is so poor. Taru is the most toxic man in all of Japanese wrestling. Magnum uh, can make an appearance, but he won't wrestle. I saw a photo of Magnum a little while back, and he's uh, he, he's enjoying retirement. And again, the, the relationship with the OWE guys makes it kind of difficult. So unless you're somehow going to find where Chocobal Kobe is or you want to call up all the random secret base guys i don't know what you do for that show but yeah and look let's talk a little bit about the uh, situation of red because i feel like that that's kind of the natural thing as we go down the rest of the card because this was the number two event on the show is now we have somewhat of a new look red with the term that we'll get into i'll just introduce this now hio watanabe joined red after the three-way match and the two red demons and they've taken out conda what do you think about what this potential first i guess the potential for red going forward and then secondarily do you have any guess on who you would put as the two red demons uh, i'll answer the second question first i literally have no idea who it's going to be and i can't even begin to speculate on it everything is so up in the air even in japan with the current contract situation and who's available and who's not i i literally have no clue as for the turns, I'm all for it because, one, we get Kanda out of these, and I'm more concerned about this on the Sambo Halls and the Fukuokas and the Kaito KBS Hall shows, we get Kanda out of these RED matches, which is going to help the match quality so much because Kanda as a babyface on the bottom of the card, for some reason, is much less offensive than Kanda as a heel on the bottom of the card. And Watanabe, I mean, this is something we've talked about for years now about the idea of him turning heel. He finally does it. I thought his heel turn was incredibly well executed, but in this Ultimo match, they kind of set up a portion of the match where Hayo was on the outside, and they were going to let him just attack everybody, and it seemed like it was going to be this really big heat spot, and then the crowd wasn't super into it. They kind of just watched it happen and didn't react, which I have mild reservations over, but it's nothing that I'm too concerned about yet because I think in time as a heel, he's going to get very over, and I'm excited to see what happens from that. Yeah, I'm totally with you about Konda as a face. I think that maybe is because we don't have to see him do crowd brawls and box attacks, maybe, because that that's all of his offense was during this uh, heel run for him. And I think this is also something with that's addition via subtraction, just because he's someone that kind of was positioned as the number three wrestler in this unit when 
he should have just been a lost post because of his physical condition and everyone else in the in the unit. I think adding Kyo is someone that they he can be a lost post. I hope that's not necessarily it because when I look at like wrestling ability of this unit, of course we're going to hold Pac and Daga aside because I don't think we're going to see either of them back anytime soon. But Kyo's probably neck and neck with Kazma as the third best wrestler and the number three in this unit now am i way off base in saying that well who would your one and two be just to jog my memory for a oh, second e- easily ada and big r like those two are unparalleled the top dogs in the unit but then after that are, are you looking at this from a in ring like how good they are or just the rankings within the unit oh in ring in ring rankings wise Hio's going to be the lost post going forward i feel like that's fair to say do you think ada is a better wrestler than hayao watanabe I think so. I, okay. I, I, I really I, like... No, what... I, I, I is your guy. You can throw him under the bus all you want. I'm just oh, curious. <laughs> oh, I'm not. I'm not throwing him under the bus. I, I think that Ada has finally found his heel wrestling role. Okay. And I, I think Big R, probably out of everyone in the unit, is probably the best wrestler in the unit. Yeah, Shimizu is the clear number one, although I think he is a far superior babyface than he has a heel, and I, I hope he turns at some point soon because... If there's one thing I really miss in this company right now, it's babyface Big R Shimizu, just because there's just a different style there that he just can't work as as a heel. Um, you miss the long head. You, you miss him as, like, the face long head. Oh, yeah. No, it's just there's just something about him. I mean, I said it for years. I thought Shimizu was one of the ten best wrestlers in the world from 2016 to about last year. I mean, I really think highly of him as a worker. So I think he's far and away the number one. I just, at this moment in time, I mean, I think Watanabe's had the better 2019 between him and Eita, and I guess I didn't expect, uh, I, I didn't expect this, but now that I think about it, it's like, well, if I'm putting money on somebody to have just an entertaining match, forget star ratings, forget so, some sort of subjectivity, if I'm looking at this from an objective, good match, good crowd reactions, I feel like I trust Watanabe more, but I, we're splitting a hairs at two and three there. I just sure. I just find that interesting that you you in particular because you have championed Watanabe since the day he came out of the company that you're like oh no he's number three when I think there's a real conversation there that in ring right now he's better than Ata. I I think a, a little bit of mine also is I'm interested to see what the prick Watanabe will be because I think that's the clear path for him is to be. I don't want to say like Lindemann when Lindemann joined Berserk and Antios, but it seems like that would be his ideal role is just being the annoying gnat of an asshole. Yeah, so, for sure. So it's going to be interesting, though. So that's who it is. I I think it's pretty clear that the Red Demons were placeholders. I have uh, my dream, kind of, would be somehow this is the way to bring back T-Hawk and Lindemann, but that's not going to be what happens here. No, and please don't report that as speculation, because I really don't think that's going to happen. But if it no. does, we will pull. The, we will have this tape ready to go. Hey. We will be posting that everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Lord knows how I like taking victory laps. But... <laughs> <laughs> Mike Spears is not a humble man. No, Behind I'm... the scenes, this man, he likes to tell me how right he is. Oh no, I love... I... How many times have I say I love being right? You wake me up with it every morning in our Slack DMs. Hey, Case, just another day of me being right. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty much that gif of the husky guy going, haters going to hate nonstop. <laughs> Absolutely. 
No, I really, I don't have a good feel for this demon thing. I mean, the first team that came to mind was uh, the Rascal, Zach Wentz, and Desmond Xavier. But as far as we know, they are still Stronghearts affiliated. I know as of recently, as of last week, that Zach Wentz and Shimo were still interacting with one another on Twitter. So it's not like there's bad blood there, at least unless something drastically changed. But I can't really think, now that LAX is off the market, I can't really think of free agent tag teams that would fit within this company. So we'll see. I'm excited to see who it is. I love a good unveiling. I'm just not sure who it is. Yeah, and when you look up and down the card, it's not like, you, when you look at people that, that, that can turn and would be a big turn, it's not Doyoshi, because if it's Doyoshi, that does it for Maximum. Maximum's dead. It's... I don't think it's Dragon Kid, even though Dragon Kid does seem to be always bothered that Ultimo never notices him. But the rest of the roster, like, I don't think that, I mean, Yashi and Punch Tone Monaga, yeah, sure, they're not super important, and they're better as heel wrestlers than they are as face ones. So then you go, like, look at, like, the indie scene and who they might pick up from the indies, and considering that they have kind of a relationship now built up with their former uh Torimon guys that have come back and I don't think it's like anyone from Russell One. I don't really think that it could be someone that Awashi brings in from DDT. It's just it's a true mystery at this part and they're in, apparently Ada says they're not gonna wrestle until he says so and they're not gonna unmask. So I think that they literally shoved the jumpsuit and the masks in the hands of Yoshioka and Minenora and say, go out there for five minutes. So who knows? And even if you look at their brief partnership with All Japan Pro Wrestling, which now we've seen two years ago <laughs> that Dragon has sent a team to their junior tag league tournament, none of these guys look like they're in a position to jump ship or that Dragon would be interested. I mean, Hiroki Sato is not someone I really want in the company, and it just wouldn't make any sense unless Ultimo is really pulling the strings and now has created some sort of bridge between his two home bases with All Japan and Dragon Gate to where they're taking a junior team. I don't see that happening at all, but I that is the other thing that came to mind was, well, you know, we've got Ultimo and, you know, Dragon Gate's been working with the junior tag league specifically for two years now, but looking at those list of teams that were involved, I don't think any of those teams are realistic chances. Yeah, it's just... It's too early to say, and it did feel like the times when they would just have someone in the Dr. Muscle app get up and not actually the turn. So who knows from there. Uh, any other thoughts about this semi-main before we start going back down the card? No, let's keep going. All right. The, the last match before intermission this time was a, it was a maximum versus natural vibes match of Miruki Doi, Dragon Kid, and Jason Lee versus the Natural Vibes team of KZ, Susumi Akoska, and Brother Yashi. Doi penned Yashi in 9 minutes and 11 seconds with a Bakatari sliding kick. This was probably either my second or third match on the card with, <clears throat> you know, just either that or the, the um, Yoshino Shun Skywalker match. I like this a lot. I feel like this was probably the best pure sprint they have on the card. Case, what were your thoughts about this? Yeah, I'll make this real quick. It was my third favorite match on the card, and I came away from this thinking that Jason Lee is a very, very good professional wrestler. And it's unfortunate that he's just he's never going to be a Dreamgate champion. I don't really think he's ever going to be a Dreamgate contender, but I would I would really like a singles run from him 
to see what he's capable of because he is very, very good. Yeah, and it's a shame he already had his uh, Brave Gate challenge of Susumu because I feel like a Jason Lee Brave Gate run would be very interesting. I, I pretty much echo all your thoughts there, though. Susumu had probably one of the best sells I've ever seen of a Mysterio Rana. That was incredible. I think he is the best Hurricanrana base of all time. Well, it's it's funny you said it because I mentioned this in my review, and I and I don't I don't think it's as compelling on audio as it as it is the way that it was written. There's a moment in this match though where Dragon Kid is about to springboard off of the ropes and do some Hurricanrana uh, combination, whatever he does, and Susumu is the one taking the move, and it just for whatever reason really caught me this time how perfect this company is and the level of excellence that is required with the wrestlers. Susumu turns around at the exact second that he needed to and then proceeds to do whatever big movie does. But it's the timing in between that 99% of the wrestlers out there, they turn two seconds before Susumu does and the move looks good, but it doesn't look as realistic. And Susumu just nailed this in a way. And look, I mean, he has wrestled Dragon Kid five, ten times a month for the past 20 years. The two have built-in chemistry now. It's not hard for them. But for whatever reason, I think the camera just caught it just right to where Susumu turns around, and as he's turning around, Dragon Kid is jumping onto his neck. And I just thought it was perfectly done. Yeah, it just was great work. These two guys have great chemistry. All right. So the last match before intermission, and was probably, other than the three-way, the most compelling thing of the undercard was the singles match of the unofficial Shun Skywalker trial series, where he faced off against Masato Yoshino. Yoshino won it in 5 minutes and 11 seconds with the very rare lightning spiral, and this worked perfectly. Uh, I want you to get your thoughts in before I give my take. So here's the deal. I just spent 15 minutes complaining about how I don't like how this company is becoming Toriyaman 2.0. This was a Toriyaman match to a T, and I loved every second of it. I thought this match was so good, and not only that, it was exciting because it was a sprint and it felt different, and we don't get a lot of, I mean, we really don't get a lot of sprint high-profile singles matches like this, so we rarely get high-profile singles matches. Five minutes is almost unheard of in this day and age for Dragon Gate. Shooter Skywalker in this match had some of the most compelling and most devastating-looking high-flying offense that I think I've ever seen. And I'm blown away by it because, you know, for a long time, he made his name as this chaotic, flying, masked wrestler where you never knew if he was going to land on his neck. You never knew if he was going to trip himself up on the ropes and never even make the dive. And then once he made the dive, you never knew where he was going to land. This match, he was in such control of his body to where every single thing he did, even though it was going through the air and it was these dives, they all looked devastating. And I was fascinated by it. And you know, the first match, uh, or the first dive he does in this match, the camera catches perfectly. They shoot it from the floor and Skywalker looks like he's about to jump through the ceiling. And then he does his rope walk moonsault a few, a few minutes later. And it's the same deal. He gets this height on it. That is unbelievable. That even Will Ospreay is not jumping as high as this guy. And then as the match goes along, you know, he nails his, his double knee moonsault to the, to the gut of Yoshino. And it looks like he's about to crash through Yoshino's body. It's unbelievable. The force that he's doing these moves with and I just feel like at some point 
he needs to get the credit. We talked about Ben K evolving early on in the show. Shun Skywalker is not this sideshow attraction anymore. He is, other than Mochizuki, I think he's been the best wrestler in the company this year. He has 11 four-plus star matches with me, which is one behind Mochizuki, and has been in a number of classics. And this one, for different reasons other than maybe the Pac match or the Mochizuki match, stick out in my mind. This is something I'm going to remember because it was five minutes of all action, and I thought it was just terrific. The one comp I would put on this match is the old Noah-Kenta versus Ricky Marvin match. Very similar. That was what came to mind when I watched it. <laughs> and the, the thing that I... It's hard to put in words how awesome this was. The Gayora cameras on the springboard uh, splash to the outside caught him at like the precise right angle of him just flying through the sky, just crashing into Yoshino, just like he's become like he's gone from like i don't know have you ever shot a shotgun before case i have not okay so there's different kinds of shot you have in a shotgun you've probably heard of bird shot buck shot and just things of the nature he's gone from someone who would just be shooting buck shot to base or bird shot to shooting buck shot so it's very concentrated powerful blasts and i think it's remarkable to see he must be the heaviest wrestler to like catch dies from just because of how much force he has going like i i really winced during that moonsault knees it was really brutal but the thing that i think is really special about this also was the moment where yoshino just decided okay this is it i'm done here and went with the missile drop kick the baseball lariat torbellino and then just lightning spirals says, i'm done i'm tired of this let's get this over with this asshole is doing way too much to me i'm done with this match i thought that ruled I, I completely agree. And it was just something so different. I kind of wish we saw more matches like this just in the entire wrestling landscape. I think they're really effective when they're done right. And who does things right more than Masato Yoshino? I, I love this. I, I really, again, I have a lot of concerns about some directions this company's going in. But this is what I'll, I'll ask you. The direction of Shun Skywalker, I really have no clue what they're doing with it. I'm intrigued by it. It's not a bad thing at all but he continues to lose these singles matches, which we just don't really see losing streak gimmicks like this. And then on top of that, he's without a unit. Ben K is without a unit. They're kind of aligned. They're kind of not though, because Skywalker seems like he really wants a Dreamgate title match. I don't, I don't know what the plan is for him. And I don't know if you have any feel on that at all. It's interesting, which is the easy answer, I guess. But it's very much like they are setting this up for him eventually to break away from Benkei to kind of be his own guy. Am I wrong in saying that? No, that's the vibe I get. But at that point, what do you do with Benkei? Because I I would like Benkei to be in a unit at some point. I think that helps Dreamgate Reigns when there's kind of a functionality to it that fits within the flow of the company. But it's him and Skywalker teaming for now. Then they're teaming with Young Boys or Martin Kirby or somebody like that. And... I mean, is I mean, I don't see Skywalker as being one of the demons. I think that would suck. I would hate for him to join R.E.D. Yeah, I, I just don't. But I I don't know. I don't know what to do about the losing, and I don't know what to do about him not being in a unit because that clearly feels like something that they're working towards one way or another. But R.E.D. doesn't feel right, and Mochiz or I'm sorry, not Mochizuki, but Ben K. It just doesn't seem. 
like I, it doesn't seem like those two are that strong of a pairing. It feels like they're trying to break those two off, but they're like tentative in doing it. They're tentative in doing that, and they're still probably about one face stable to light, I would say, because this is one of the larger uh, face armies that they've had in years, basically since they almost the conversion over to from Torimon Japan to Dragon Gate. So it's not even like how in the past where we're like, okay, this feels like a proto unit going on here. This just feels like these are two guys who are just kind of allied and teaming together. And it's weird because I don't think Shun Skywalker as a wrestler necessarily is the kind of guy that as a heel, at least in this character, I don't know if I buy it entirely. You know? It just it's just a weird thing because he his wrestling style and all that just does not necessarily match up fully with how R.E.D. is as a heel unit, and then it's very clear there's a stratification between the two of them at the same time. So it's just a very complicated situation, I feel like, with those two. So it's really... It's interesting going forward because now they've been united together since the uh, King of Gate, the end of King of Gate. It'll be interesting to see how it goes going forward. Uh, any other thoughts about this before we get into... We're going to breeze through the... Uh, bottom of the card just because there's not a whole lot to talk about other than a couple key moments no i just i echo your sentiments i don't think he in his current incarnation works as a heel wrestler and i i don't understand why they need to turn him i don't feel like that's an appropriate direction for him but i also when you lose time after time after time that's kind of, it's wrestling tells us that's the next, next logical step right right all right so the other star match on the undercard was the three-way match between Kaido Ishida, Keisuke Okuda, and Hio Watanabe. This was built off of all the misfire between Okuda and Watanabe, and just Watanabe not being happy with Okuda being a member of Mochizuki Dojo. Uh, Watanabe got disqualified. The official result says 5 minutes and 42 seconds. It was really about closer to 10 minutes when he started doing chair attacks to Okuda. He attacked then uh, Yuki Oshioka and Kota Minenora, who basically said, why are you doing this? And then he said he was a member of R.E.D. from now on. Mochizuki came out, and they challenged each other for the next Korkin. I, I, we kind of talked about the heel turn earlier. This was just textbook how you should do this heel turn, if you ask me. I thought it was greatly done. The match itself did not kind of reach the status that I thought the other matches did in the lead-up to this. So I was a little disappointed a little bit. Yeah, it's just an awkward match. I mean, triple threat matches are always a little uncomfortable, but when you use it as a vehicle to build into another angle, it's very strange. But I, again, I, I this was all worth it to me. It didn't feel like a waste of time because I thought the angle was so well done and they kept it simple, which is what it needed to be. So I'm a fan. I look forward to seeing what he can do. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And I think that this will, having Hio as a heel will be, as we said earlier, pretty interesting to go on. I'm just going to run through the first three matches of the showcase. If you have anything you want to talk about these matches, just point out to me. I felt like they were pretty textbook, Ultimo-style undercard. Uh, the uh, the second match, or the uh, next match was Yuki Oshioka and Kota Minora losing to Takashi Yoshida and Kazuma Sakamoto in 5 minutes and 43 seconds after Yoshida powerbombed Minenora. I thought it was fine. Uh, Case, any thoughts on that one? It was fine. All right. The second match on the show was the Tri-Vanguard team of Yamato and Yosuke Santa Maria against the cranky old vets of Don Fuji and Gamma. Uh, I thought this was a whole lot of fun, and it was you, we got to see cranky Don Fuji. 
it was strange to see Yamato in a straight tag match on the undercard. Mm-hmm. Uh, just we don't see a lot of that. But as I mentioned in my review over at VoicesOfWrestling.com, Don Fuji and Yamato get really violent when they're in the ring with one another, and I always really enjoy that. So that was that was all I have to say on this one. Was it was a uh, strange circumstances, but enjoyable. Yeah, it just was kind of strange, and you know this whole situation with Don Fuji and Gamma saying them is kind of interesting. So the opener was a 10-person tag with a mixed teams. first team was mostly Tri Vanguard with Hulk, who looks a lot better now. Looks like he finally is getting back muscle. Kai, Kakatora, and uh, and uh, Martin Kirby and Hiroshi Yamato going against the nominally Natural Vibes and Dragon team of Ginky Horiguchi, Punch Tomonaga, uh, Problem Dragon, Monday Ryu, and Dragon Daya, and Kenichiro Rai. Ginky Horiguchi got the pen with the black slide from heaven in 5 minutes and 19 seconds on BB Hulk. Really, I, not much happened in this match other than the big backslide week sequence, if you ask me. Yeah, I thought BB Hulk, as you said, looked healthier than he has been, which is nice to see. Yeah, it looks like he's finally been able to kind of get muscle back because he, he's a very lanky person and he looks weird when he doesn't have a whole lot of muscle. Match zero. There was a match zero on the show, which was a five limit time limit, five minute time limit draw between Jimmy and now the returning Oji Shiba, which is nice to see as he was someone that really disappeared off the map after he hurt his knee. He, of course, is the former Katoka's younger brother and gets his jazzy version of of uh, Leave My Dreams. And I thought that was kind of the only thing from the match. It was nice seeing both these guys and it looks like they're going to have kind of a back and forth going forward. Yeah, Oji Shibo returned one year to the day of his injury, believe it or not. It was exactly 365 days since he last wrestled. Uh, we had speculated for months that we were never going to see him again uh, because our initial vibe was that his injury was just going to leave him out for a few months. And then when he never returned, we kind of figured that was it. Uh, he comes back here and it looked like he hadn't wrestled in about a year. Uh, but it was fine. It was a five-minute dark match, so there's no need to get up in arms about it. Right, yeah. It, I, for a while, we both kind of privately speculated that he might have been Dragon Daya, and that's obviously not the case. So yeah, You're right. That, I, I completely forgot that was uh, that was a line of thinking we had for quite a while, that he might be under that mask. But you're, I totally forgot about that. Good call. Yeah, so that was it for the Corican overall. You know, it's hard for me to negatively have a view even of an Ultimo-style show when you have such a great main event as Benke versus uh, Masaki Mochizuki. Uh, any other thoughts on the show before you start running down what's coming up next in Dragon Gate? No, go watch Yoshino Skywalker and go watch the main event. Yep, and again, that show will be up about till about uh, about 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the 14th or a fifth, or midnight Japanese Standard Time. Taking a look at the schedule going up, we basically have the entire schedule, with the exception of the last week, for everything going up to Gate of Destiny. Only two televised shows. One of them is tomorrow and might not happen because of the Super Typhoon rolling through. Uh, they have not officially canceled the show. Most other companies in the country have, but it is their monthly Kyoto KBS Hall show. Uh, key things on this show is... Uh, Hio Wanabe's first heel match. He is teaming with Takashi Yoshida versus Kota Minenora and Masaki Mochizuki. And uh, just looking at the rest of the, the show for matches on there, there's a single match with Jason Lee and Kazma, which could be really cool. And the main event has Yuzushi Kanda back on the face side, teaming with Ultimo and Ryo Saito versus 
Ada, Big R, Shimizu, and Diamante. So uh, that'll be an interesting show if it makes tape. I don't know if they're going to actually have the show because that typhoon is looking pretty rough. Yeah, if it happens, great. And if it doesn't, then I hope some of these matches are made up in the future because there's some good-looking stuff on here. Yep. The only the only other big match or big show of October and the only other live show on the network is the monthly Kobe Sembo Hall show. It has uh, Kai versus Problem Dragon, which is kind of wild. Uh, we The uh, match where you were talking about earlier about them shuffling people down the card, but it looks like it could be a whole lot of fun, is a... Maximum team of Nuruki Doi, Dragon Lee, oh, Dragon Lee, <laughs> Dragon Kid, and Jason Lee versus <laughs> Benkei, Shun Skywalker, and Martin Kirby. I think that's one of Martin Kirby's last matches in Dragon Gate by the end of his tour. Other on that show that looks pretty solid, we get a Strong Machine Army match and Masato Yoshino and Kaido Ishida versus KZ and Susumu Yokosuka. Main event is almost exactly a run back of the Kyoto show, just take out. Big R Shimizu and put in Takashi Yoshida. Anything from this show kind of stick out for you that you're looking forward to? Uh, well, you got me excited when you said Dragon Lee by accident. I think <laughs> I'd like to see Dragon Lee in this company. No, the uh, the Yoshino Ishida versus Keizu Susumu match should be a lot of fun. Um, and I will not be watching Kai versus Problem Dragon as I am not a completist. I am not a masochist, and I would rather not watch that. Yeah, it, it, you're not a notebook pervert like I am. Where I have that is that is canon now. You are a notebook pervert. I like yeah. that. Yeah. All right. So we did not mention this when we were talking about the main event at of Corican, but they did set up the Dreamgate match for Gate of Destiny. It will be on November fourth. This is their annual show from Edeon Arena One, the bigger arena there, and that is Ben K making his third defense of the Open the Dreamgate Championship against the guy he faced in this very same arena one year ago, Masato Yoshino. Also noted, officially announced, this was already well known, that there will be English commentary for subscribers on Dreamgate Network. Lenny Leonard will have the call there, and I'm really stoked for Lenny and also Larry Dallas be back on color there. So we'll probably review this a lot better as we get closer to the show, but we at least have the headlining match, and it'll be interesting to see how this this new Binkei faces off against Masato Yoshino. Yeah, it should be a good time. I'm already looking forward to the match, and I'm very excited that uh, Lenny Leonard will be in the booth for this show. I thought Rich Boccini did a tremendous job during Kobe World, mm -hmm. as did Larry Dallas, of course. Uh, but Lenny has been, you know, he called every Dragon Gate USA show. He knows the product pretty well, and there's not a nicer man on the planet, at least from my limited interactions with him, than Lenny Leonard. So I'm stoked for him. Uh, Larry did a great job last time, so he has more than earned a second opportunity here. So that should be fun. And uh, as always, we'll have all of the Gate of Destiny coverage you could possibly need uh, on this podcast and over at VoicesOfWrestling.com. Yep, and it's going to be a good... I It's my favorite show of the year, traditionally, I've been Gate of Destiny, so I'm excited to see the, the show. And I'm beyond excited to have Lenny Leonard, the voice of Dragon Gate USA, back in the company. Uh, the only other show that we have matches coming up were matches that were set up at Corkin. So this is for November 7th. This is only three matches. They'll announce more probably right after Gate of Destiny. The uh, three matches we know are Misaki Mochizuki versus Hio Watanabe, Susumi Yokosuka, Ginki Horiguchi, and Kanichiro Rai versus Takashi Yoshida, Kazuma Sakamoto, and Diamante. So that's like a second class versus a RED match. And then what looks like probably might be the main event unless something happens is Ultimo Dragon teaming with Yazushi Kanda versus Ada and Big R Shimizu. Oh god, do you think that's going to be the main event? 
Look at where Ultimo has been on the, is being put on cards right now. Jesus Christ. Okay, all right. <laughs> that that bum me out. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I God, I hope Ben K is doing something interesting on that show. If that's the main event, oh boy. I mean, there's a lot of guys, and it's something that I want to get into as we close out the year is how the how loaded the roster is at this point, and if we're going to have a lot more of this cork and where there's nine, nine matches on it versus the rest. But I think that we'll probably... Uh, other stuff on the Dragon Gate Network, they posted their uh, Toriumon uh, historical show. This was the uh, Vamanos Amigos from, I think it was November uh, 2000, because it had matches from uh, uh, the from Differ Ariake has a really, really well-known elimination match of... Uh, M2K versus Crazy Max. It was Shima, Sua, Don Fuji, 2000. He was Sumo Fuji, 2000. Sorry, Sumo Dandy Fuji, 2000. Yeah, please get it right. Yeah. Thank you. Versus the M2K team of Masaki Mochizuki, Yuzushi Kanda, and Susumu Mochizuki, of course. This was before. Susumu lost his last name. Also has a, a bunch of matches from Kobe. Uh, Chicken George, which probably the, the big highlight there is a... I'm trying to look at this right. No, that lineup doesn't make sense. But there, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. There's probably the sleaziest match possible as Yusushi Kanda versus Kanichiro Rai. That is up on the network. There was also a Prime Zone up that had a really cool European-style grappling match between Martin Kirby and Super Sisa, which is worth going out of your way to check out. All right, so, Case, we wanted to have some time at the end of this to actually talk OWE news. And as we're recording this, as I had a feeling, a pretty big article came out. And there's been a big rumor going around over the last few months and last few weeks about the status of OWE. Most people know of OWE because of Shima and Stronghearts, but of course there was the Chinese portion and they had the shows in, in Canada and they were looking to have shows in the UK, but it got kind of thrown up, of just kind of just thrown off. This was an article done by friend of the show in front of the site nuclear convoy i'll have a link to it over over in the uh, the episode description and on the post on voices of wrestling.com and basically it kind of clarifies the whole rumor going around that owe is dead of course it is not dead it's just kind of changed in a lot of different ways and case uh i think pretty much a uh, First off, it's worth talking about the OWE UK shows and how they completely fell apart because the guy running them just ran off with the money, basically, and no showed, no showed them, and it was kind of a big thing because it was looking at it to be this kind of preposterous kind of show that had not a whole lot of OWE things, but a lot of stuff promised and not exactly happening as was speculated of. Oh, what were your thoughts kind of about the whole OWE UK collapse? Well, it's it's just a bummer because OWE is a company that is so desperately looking to break into these foreign markets. I, and I don't mean desperately as an insult. I mean, they, they have an incredible show to put on and they, they want to break into these foreign markets. And it's a shame when this happens that, you know, the UK indie scene is what it is and that these promoters are what they are. Um, had this relationship, let, let's say these shows had happened, it would have been very interesting to see how these shows would have progressed because even before the shows happened, when it looked like they were going to happen, 
my understanding is there was some tension between the OWE office and what OWE UK was doing that they weren't necessarily putting on authentic OWE shows, but they never happened. So that was the least of OWE's problems. Yeah. And I've talked with people and the big idea about these shows, at least somewhat from an OWE standpoint was they really want to get their Chinese wrestlers, American wrestling visas. Like that's pretty apparent if you just like look at how these things are going and the idea that i was told was okay they they come to these shows and they show that they will come not overstay and leave and show that they are good citizens and that might give them more evidence for in the future when they apply for u.s work visas that they would be able to get pushed through now more positively versus the issues they had with the owe canada and the early stuff of aew so and, and that whole scene's just a mess like, it, when I first started to see what was being booked on these shows, I was like, okay, this kind of reads like a disaster to me at the very least. Well, and the good news is, and I, and I don't want to jump ahead of what we're going to discuss, but it says in this article um, at the very end of it when discussing the relationship with OWE and AEW, and again, this is on nuclearconvoy.com.wordpress.com, um, but it says in the final paragraph, it did come up that five members of OWE's roster have obtained some kind of visa to travel to the U.S. of A. That list reads as the best of, which includes uh, who I'm assuming is Aben, yeah. Gao Jinga, and Duan uh, Yingen uh, of th three of the five names there. But those three are the important ones. Uh, Aben is the highly touted prospect who blows my mind every time I watch him. And then Gao and Duan have worked with Shima closely. Uh, you've probably seen Gao Jinga, at least in gift form. He's the one that did a 450 slash basically from the floor to in the ring, which I've never really seen before. No one's ever tried except for him. Um, so if those five are able to work in the U.S., that's incredibly exciting because that is going to completely shake up uh, AEW Dynamite, AEW Dark, the pay-per-views. If they are featured at all, they are going to make headlines yeah, and Gao was someone who was the only Chinese student who was on the OWE Canada shows, and he had the matches with Samuel Guevara that were very highly touted in the one with Speedball Mike Bailey. So who Mike Bailey requested to work with. I feel like we're, we can say that publicly. Yeah, Mike Bailey wanted to work with Gao specifically, so good for him. Yeah, and, Duan, and good for Mike Bailey for watching tape. Yeah, yeah, good for him for watching tape. Uh, I'm not as familiar with Liu Xinzi and Zhao Junji, and I think that one of them is the is the Chinese wrestler who kind of uh, wears traditional kind of theater makeup. And I'm trying to think about none of them are my I don't think either of them are my boy, uh, Mr. T. Cool, sadly. So <laughs> I, I, the uh, Zimzi, I think I'm oh, hopefully I'm pronouncing yeah. that right. He I have seen him work. I don't know if I could pick him out of a lineup, but I know that name, so I've seen him do some stuff. So he's at least a featured talent. Um, no Shaolin Monk, which is a shame. Uh, Shaolin Monk recently just teamed with Kenny Omega and Shima in Singapore in a match that is available for free that I highly recommend watching. It is a very good match. Uh, Shima, Kenny Omega, and uh, Shaolin Monk take on a, a trio of Singapore wrestlers who are also very good. Um, that's that's up there that's out there for free i would recommend watching that at some point yeah so the other parts in this article and again i know it's getting tweeted around right now as we're recording is they've moved out of shanghai they've kind of split camps because here's something about shanghai and even if you're someone that's not too familiar with the whole situation in china shanghai is one of the most expensive 
cities in the world to run a business. There's just it's just how the Chinese kind of business structure works there. It's incredibly expensive rent, and the big thing, at least from my impression, this is my impressions. This isn't anything that I know. Is if they did not get TV that they had to pay for, that it wasn't going to last in Shanghai. So they've split camps. There's one in, again, I'm going to try to not butcher this pronunciation, uh, Siem Reap, Cambodia, which is over near Angkor Wat, and then one in Chengdu. And Chengdu is a pretty up-and-coming city in China, and it looks like that they're having a venue. There's a bunch of photos of them setting up their whole operation in Cambodia, and then the one in Chengdu that they're putting together as well. So over, it, it's a situation where it is incredibly expensive to operate this kind of production here. And without really hiding too much info about it, it's worth getting into the OWE Japan and Strong Hearts relationship case. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting to see. I, I'm just fascinated by Strong Hearts in Japan as a whole because everything that, you know, at least from what I understand, it really does feel like Shima in particular has burnt a bridge with the Dragon Gate side of things. Whereas, and I don't anticipate this to happen at all, but if T-Hawk and Lindemann wanted to get back in the company, I feel like it's not impossible, but Shima really feels like there's some bad blood there. But uh, Wrestle One houses continue to go down, which is odd because T-Hawk is champion, but they're not really featuring Stronghearts as much as they were anymore, which I think is the reason they're going down. It's not because of Stronghearts. It's because of the lack of Stronghearts. Now... They're kind of in big Japan doing some stuff, but it doesn't really feel like that's there. And now they're running OWE Japan shows, which the ones that have made tape have been a lot of fun. But I don't know how sustainable that is as a drawing brand, even if you want to run Shinjuku first ring, you know, once a month in Cork and Hall once a quarter, if that was even the idea. I don't know how viable that is. Yeah, and this is actually going to bring up someone that we haven't talked about in a couple of years case. Uh Takashi ok Okamura, the former owner of Dragon Gate, he was the founder after the split, was the person that was profiting off the original OWE Japan shows. So OWE proper was not making money off those shows, apparently. So even though they were selling out, I think they were, they were in Osaka World Pavilion as well. Those were like the two places. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they were doing well there. It just was a thing that it was not really enriching OWE when... They were not able to take money out of it because it was all going in the promoter's pocket, which was Okamura. But quoting, I'm just going to read this paragraph in this article again. This is really worth talking about and reading. I'll have that. I'll have it in the notes. I've already retweeted this on my Twitter as we're recording. As of their Corkin show on December 30th, 2019, which I'm not going to drop any names. There are some big names that are going to show up on that show. Uh, Shima will be the general manager of a company invested in by OWE for the express purposes of promoting OWE's brand in Japan. This is an effort, of course, to harness the strong sales record of the brand has developed in Japan for their own enrichment rather than a third party like Okamura. Shima has made it clear to me, Nuclear Convoy, that there will not be any difficulties caused by his AWE commitments and running more this more official Japanese extension of OWE. I was told that T-Hawk and L. Lindemann had are going to help running this brand so it looks like that this might truly be like almost like a strong hearts owe in japan yes which, which is exciting yes and, and if shima is uh the one calling the shots or the one making decisions as mike kind of alluded to earlier just 
have an eye on whatever they do because if Shima's running things and has these connections that he's made over the past 20 years, what they have planned could be very, very exciting. Yeah, and then there is a... Though there was one of the last rumors was about Dragon Fu, who was the CEO of OWE and Shima having a falling out. They said there were some business disagreements and tensions caused by the company, by the fall at UK, but all the parties are now on the same page. She, when Shima heard about these rumors, he was shocked to hear that people thought there were a falling out. And then it looks like their the relationship with AEW is very positive. I've heard outside of Nuclear Convoy that they have been very key on it. Shima's been in the United States every Wednesday. He's been doing a lot more shows in Mexico, which is kind of wild. He's going to be in the on the Crash main event, I think, in November. So there's a lot yes, of... Yes, the Ray Horace-Jeff Cobb-Shima triple threat match that we've all been waiting for. Yeah, wild, wild match, wild match. But I wanted to make sure to talk about it to somewhat um, clarify. Again... We're just talking about this article and some rumors we've heard. Uh, it looks like that OWE, after having like this very like splashy thing, there was a situation that they just had to refocus their business. If you ask me, like that they're going to be going to places that, personally, I'd be surprised if the Cambodian government was not helping them a little bit if they're going to be near Angkor Wat and Chengdu is almost like a vacation town in China. So it makes sense for like their live shows because they haven't been taping live shows since their previous Chinese TV deal ended so it makes sense that they're kind of refocusing and everything that's going to happen for owe japan going forward and i think it's going to be exciting to see what like a purely shima folk or shima led owe japan will be going forward because as you said uh wrestle one i feel like that that's gone long in the tooth and them in big japan was always kind of the head scratcher for them in strong hearts especially now they have like shigehiro iri it just is kind of a weird situation, wouldn't you say? Oh, it's it's completely weird. And, and to go to, you know, back to your point about where OWE goes from here, I, I can't pretend to know anything about Cambodian geography yeah. or the economics of it. All I know is that if OWE is able to foster wrestlers in their dojo there, then I'm all for it. Yeah, and it looks like that it's actually, I'm looking at some of the photos here, that they've basically taken over a pub, and they're going to like have kind of like a almost like nightly shows blending wrestling per martial arts and musical performances so it's gonna be kind of a i don't want to say tourist trap because that's like the very that's a very degrading thing but it looks like it's a big tourist thing and it looks like the china thing might end up being very similar to the makai fighting opera which famously has taru and kenichiro rai in it as well so it's interesting it looks like that they're going to be doing more performance-based stuff and and Cambodia and Chengdu, and then doing like straight wrestling in Japan going forward. Yeah, it could be very exciting. I, I'm I'm very curious to see what comes of this and what comes of their relationship with all elite wrestling as well. Yeah, it, it's going to be very exciting to see how things end out the year there and end out the year for OWE in general. So, um, anything else you wanted to touch on before we end this episode, case? No, that's all I've got. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore in your case. Uh, you can find my reviews of every major Dragon Gate show over at VoicesOfWrestling.com. Um, you can catch me also now doing live reviews of AAW uh, monthly or when they run. I guess they're not running in October, but I will be back live at the Logan Square Auditorium in November uh, for a show that features Josh Alexander versus Ace Romero as the main event, which 
may sound like an odd main event on paper, but AAW kind of exists in its own universe, and they push guys that really matter to the local fan base, and Ace Romero versus Josh Alexander is a huge match to that fan base. I do live reviews there, and then you can read them after the fact over at VoicesOfWrestling.com. And thank you once again, Mike, for letting me come on the show. Oh, absolutely. It was a blast doing this. It's been a while since we got to talk, and probably for the best that we weren't moaning about the September shows. So I'm glad we got to talk about a potential match of the year contender on this one. Absolutely. So for my side of things, you could follow me personally on Twitter at Fujiheya. That's Fuji with two eyes, like Don Fuji. Of course, I have another podcast on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network, Everything Elite, covering the AEW promotion as it's now off the ground on TNT. It's a weekly show. Expect those in your podcast feed every Thursday evening or Friday morning. Uh, please follow the, this podcast account on Twitter at Open Voicegate. That's where you'll see the new episodes pop up. I always make sure that the big Dragon Gate news that is tweeted gets retweeted there. And just be nice to give us a follow up. You can uh, follow us on our Red Circle account, which is the new podcast service. I don't know if we've done episodes since Red Circle launched case, but Red Circle has this nice little feature, no obligation whatsoever, where you can send a donation to us. You can either set it up for a one-time donation or a reoccurring one. It is kind of like Patreon, but we do not have Patreons. So maybe it's more like a cash me or coffee kind of thing, and you can find it there. Please rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. And we'll probably be back maybe by the end of this month, maybe early next month with a preview of Gate of Destiny and a more kind of concrete idea as how Dragon Gate is looking into November. But for Case, this is Mike. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.